Irish podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're here. Okay, these are on. Uh, hey, guys. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Welcome back. Uh, this feels totally natural. I am, I'm totally at ease right now. What about you, Stuart? Absolutely. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, I, I actually, it is. Yeah, I, I feel more at, at ease talking in front of a group of people than I do talking to my computer screen in my office with my door closed, my kids screaming on the outside and cats scratching on the door and then dogs barking in the background and my wife asking when we're going to be done. Well, today we do have a show. I promise we'll get to it. We have a wonderful guest, Dr. Mary Kwok, and we're going to be talking about some abnormalities in the, in the CBC and a couple cases. But before we do that, Paul, um, why don't you tell why don't you tell the audience what we do on this show? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. Um, and again, this feels completely natural. There is nothing more comforting than just your stony silence the five minutes before we started. So that was <laughs> thank you for that. We really felt very welcome. Um, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, it's I mean, it's weird you guys are forced to listen to the first ten minutes now, so I can't I can't shame <laughs> you. So um, sorry in advance, but for anyone who may be listening to this later, you should be ashamed of yourself if you skip past the good parts, which are at the very beginning. I, I should also mention that this is being recorded as a joint grand rounds uh, between Walter Reed and Uniform Services University, a.k.a. USU. Um, but in case, uh, for whatever reason, when they preview this, they decide we can't release it, we'll just say this is at Cashlack Memorial, and I'll bleep all that out. Um, <laughs> So I think we've covered all our bases. At this point, Paul, you should probably tell them about our wonderful guest. We have a wonderful guest. Uh, we ha- are l- fortunate and lucky to have Dr. Uh, Mary Kwok, uh, and I will now tell you about her without stumbling through her biography. <laughs> she attended undergraduate at University of Washington with a BS in biochemistry and a BA in anthropology in Seattle, Washington. Attended medical school at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. And this is where I pause for applause. Do you guys do that? There you go. <laughs> And her internal medicine residency and hematology oncology fellowship at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Clark was also a research fellow in multiple myeloma at the National Cancer Institute and currently is the program director for the hematology oncology fellowship program at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And with that, can we present Dr. Mary Clark? <laughs> Well, Dr. Kwok, uh, we'll call you Mary from here on out, if that's Please okay. Please do. Yes, thank you. Um, so we are always going to start off our show with this easy question. Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself? Include something outside medicine. Of course. Okay, so let's see. I am an Army oncologist, uh, hematologist oncologist, here working currently at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. I am currently the program director of the Hematology Oncology Fellowship, um, but probably more accurate to think of me as a PGY-12, because the truth is um, I'm constantly learning new things, not only in hematology and oncology, but learning from the house staff here, um, from things in general medicine. 
Um, outside of the hospital, I am married to a gastroenterologist, so that's kind of inside the hospital too. But um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a mom to three girls, um, ages three, six, and ten. Um, on the side, I like to try to cultivate a garden, uh, but it's probably a good thing we're not dependent on it for our food. <laughs> okay, yeah. so that's an aspirational goal. Absolutely, yeah. What are you growing? Uh, snap peas, um, little peppers, and then you know, like other things, but the rabbits or something keep eating them. This this keeps coming up on the show that that many guests have said that they're gardeners, and I keep saying I'm going to start a garden. Still, have not started a garden, but I, you know, maybe now this is like the fourth or fifth time I'm. I've probably got to do it. I keep saying it publicly too. So, so Dr. Kwok. Is it Uniform Services University or is it Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences now? Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. Mm, okay. All right. So that's wrong. Got it. <laughs> Incisive. Good stuff. <laughs> so is there, in your estimation, is there a favorite book? You can't get that anymore, Paul, that you think every physician or learner should read? Yes. Yes. Okay. So for our hematology oncology fellows, we've wanted them to read um, uh, Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee. It's an amazing history, the story of cancer and where we are today with cancer therapies. Um, I sent all our incoming fellows an advanced copy for them to read, and hopefully they read it before they arrive. Um, but really, I think there's this quote by like Sir Isaac Newton that says something like, if we see further now it's because we stand on the shoulder of giants. And I think that um, reading this history um, uh, and knowing where we came from makes us better oncologists now because of all the work that was done before. But if I could give a second book, um, I think all doctors should probably read When Breath Becomes Air. So this is a book that um, outlines a story. It's actually written by a a physician, a neurosurgeon, I believe, um, who was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. And the book was, I think, finished by his wife after he passed away. Um, and maybe it was because I read this during a period of just personal burnout um, that it really reminded me like, oh, this is why I went into medicine. This is why I went into oncology and has really encouraged me to um, think about the patient's perspective. Um, and so I think that would be a great book for all physicians to read. Just um, FYI, in case you pick it up, um, I read it like while I was seated on the aisle seat of an airplane. Um, nobody told me that I needed tissues or should have chosen a window seat because there were like tears streaming down my eyes. And so just for future reference. I'm sure the people in your row were super comfortable during that flight. <laughs> it's like, just the turbulence. My, my seatmate's having a nervous breakdown right now. <laughs> yeah, the flight attendant, I'm sure appreciated it. I, I'm generally, uh, but we've talked about that book before. And I think I read it. I I generally don't like to read stuff like that. My father actually died complications of cancer therapy and uh but I I actually found that book helped me more than hurt me emotionally if that's a thing to say. But I I really enjoyed it. So I would even for someone who generally I never read stuff like that, I I really liked it too. Let's punt it to Paul. Yeah, no, it's I mean, I was going to ask about best advice, but it sounds like bring Kleenex, but I I guess sort of (laughs) more specifically, um, your best advice you've received, either as a learner or as a teacher, so sort of more specific to medical education, what what sort of wisdom can you pass on for us? Yeah, so um, maybe I'll say as both, um, is to set goals for whatever you're learning. And so right now I'm rotating on the wards. Um, It's probably been my umpteenth time, like rotating on the wards without staff. And so it could become very, very routine. But I think that if um, I set goals for myself or if the house staff are setting goals for themselves, 
within two weeks, I think we could accomplish something. And so uh, that's been the most, I think, tangible and measurable type um, growth as a learner and as a teacher. Can people up in the back hear us when we're just talking? Okay. So we won't worry about the house system. It's I can see it's still picking up on my recorder here. So we should be okay. What are you? Okay. All right. Let's get on. So did that work? I don't know. Did it? I don't know. No. All right. Let's just forget it. Let's just forget about that. We're getting distracted. You're the king of distractions for me. But it's working. House ran rounds. All right. It was great. They spent 20 minutes pushing a dial. It was fantastic. I learned so a ton. So this is the part of the show mm-hmm. where we like to just spend a lot of time on a technical difficulty. <laughs> um, but actually, we wanted to bring some picks of the week to you. And I'll throw it to Paul first. Oh. Stuart, this is your notice for pick of the week. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I wish you hadn't. I've been, I, I have to, I've got to be honest with you guys. I find you to be a really intimidating crowd. Um, just be, I feel like a, a worse person in front of you is, I guess, what I'm saying. <laughs> and so... My, my pick of the week was initially, I think, going to be John Wick 3, but then I felt really just uncomfortable recommending that. But, guys, there's, there's a scene where they're using display knives and they're just hucking them at each other. It is, so if you like that kind of thing, John Wick 3. Um, <laughs> but you're better than that. You probably, don't, you probably would not be interested in that. So I think I'm going to recommend a movie-related podcast. Um, it's The Movies That Made Me. And it's, a, it's Joe Dante, who actually directed Gremlins, and this guy, Josh Olson, the screenwriter. And they bring in this third guy. And basically, it's just three lunatics who know everything about every movie. And they just talk about them. And they're like, oh, yeah, that guy was the second key grip on Casablanca. And it's just, it's such a, for me, I find it very soothing to listen to three people who are really, really good and really, really knowledgeable and really, really passionate about something, um, unlike us three. So it's, it's nice to sort of listen and hear experts discuss something that they really, really enjoy. So it's, even if you're not a huge movie fan, I got a lot out of it. So it's the movies that made me. Or John Wick 3. <laughs> I definitely want to see John Wick 3 now. I would like to recommend an episode of the Tim Ferriss podcast. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that podcast. He recently had an episode where he interviewed Julie Rice, who's one of the co-founders of SoulCycle. And uh, in general, I'm obsessed with listening to people that have like founded things and built things, talk about how they did it. Um, what I thought was most usable from what she said is that she, she had a partner, a co-founder, and they actually like saw a therapist like kind of like preventively like when they first formed their partnership they didn't know each other that well and they were seeing like a therapist slash coach and from that partnership they learned how to like work together how to negotiate with each other and they actually founded their whole company's culture based on that and it's sort of built into the culture from the top down that way I think it's uh, it's a, it's a very inspiring interview and just as someone who works in a big team uh, on this show and then just she also even talked about partnerships in her marriage. Uh, I thought it was really useful uh, for any of you who are interested to listen. So I thought we were going to be passing up on the picks of the week. Uh, one of the ones I wanted to recommend and one of the ones I wanted to briefly talk about is a Travis Malloy film called Infinity Chamber. Um, it's kind of like a sci-fi Groundhog Day where this individual is put into prison and then essentially lives the same day over and over and over again as they're trying to glean information from him. It's actually quite poignant, in fact. Uh, the ending is uh, a little bit surprising. Um, you've got to look for a couple of, of very subtle findings. But what I found interesting is that the individual who directed this film is the same individual who had written the script for another film that I, I really liked called Pandorum. So if you know anything about sci-fi uh, and you know anything about the first film, then you'll enjoy the second one as well. We definitely want some time to talk about medicine. Let's, let's move into a case here. 
And I think we have some clever names. Yeah, I'm not proud of this one. Um, <laughs> so we're going to start with, uh, with Lucas Itosis. And again, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, he is a 55-year-old male. He is presenting for primary care. He has no complaints. He's here at the behest of his wife. Um, hopefully our information matches up with what's up on the screen. <laughs> He's got... It does not. Fantastic. Why don't we actually see what we're looking at here? There you go. It's there now. Great. So where are we at? He's presenting. He has no complaints. His wife has made him show up. He, um, and then on his past history is significant for some tobacco use. He's a little bit overweight. He uses Tums for heartburn. He takes ibuprofen for shoulder pain. His vital signs, vital signs and exam are grossly normal. In a moment of weakness, you let your resident order a screening CBC, you know, just to get a baseline. Um, and then you're stuck with it because the white blood cell count comes back at 13.1. And it's 60% neutrophils, 25.6% lymphocytes, 2.6% EOs. 0.7% basophils, 11.1% monocytes, and no bands. The remainder of the CBC is normal. And here we are. So <laughs> I, we're going to use that as a launching point just from the start, knowing that I'm an inherently lazy person, and I'm presenting this to you as, as someone I don't know what to do with, what information is important to you, and sort of where should we start with this case? Yeah, so in the CBC, um, the white count, generally hemoglobin, platelets, the MCV, and the diff are probably the parts of the CBC that we look at regularly. The rest are there and may play a role sometimes, but not usually. Um, so we want to do calculations of the absolute neutrophil count, absolute lymphocyte count, etc. Um, and so knowing the absolute counts is the most helpful. Now, um, you give us some history um, that the patient is here, and uh, sounds like he's coming in just for routine care. And so this is a CBC for someone who's totally asymptomatic. Correct. Okay. As one does. Right. I, I mean, I love my CBC. Like, I love my morning <laughs> coffee. So uh, I don't know about y'all. But, um, and so, um, uh, but now you have an abnormality and you have to figure it out, right? So the, the, probably the biggest abnormality on this gentleman is um, that he has a white count that's elevated. Um, um, of, excuse me, a white count, a uh, neutrophil count that's elevated 7,800 and a monocyte count that's elevated at 1,300-ish. Yeah. So those are the two that jump out at me. I wanted to just go back to what you said. The I've always was initially taught to look at the differential, but it sounds like you like to look at the absolute counts. Is that more useful for us? Like because they usually reported out differential, like the percentages at the top, and then the absolute counts at the bottom. And right. Sometimes they don't always match up with like what's normal, what's abnormal. Right. Right. So um, we generally skip over the percentages or make a quick calculation and pay attention to the absolutes. So what is when someone comes in with like. It, it, I, you know, in primary care or whether you're or you're in the hospital wards, I think like most CBCs are abnormal if you're seeing a patient that's worthy of internal medicine. Like they, they almost always have <laughs> abnormal CBC. I just don't waste my time. Yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, normal CBC, get out of my office. <laughs> um, what, what are some immediate red flags that might just be like automatic hematology oncology consult? So... Specifically with the white count, is that what you're asking? Yeah. So this has to do with the diff, right? Mm -hmm. So anytime you see blasts on the peripheral blood smear, we want to consult like ASAP, okay. right? The, but the rest of them really depend on the clinical scenario, right? So um, neutrophilia, maybe think of an infection. Um, and then this person is a smoker, right? And so um, smoking is probably a very common cause for neutrophilia for without any other reason. Um, if they have a lymphocytosis, then we start thinking, you know, could they have a lymphoproliferative disorder. And then certainly for monocytosis, particularly if they're older, you know, we think of um, maybe CMML. Um, 
chronic myelomon just CMML. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We gotcha. A leukemia, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> and so these would be things that we would want to work up eventually, but probably blasts um, or super high counts um, we would want to see right away. Oh, I'm sorry. I left out one. Basophilia. Basophilia. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This is never normal. And so uh, basophilia raises our suspicion for a myeloproliferative neoplasm, and we'd want to see them right away as well. And when you get the, I just tend to see a lot of people with like a eosinophil count in the 5 to 10% range, and I'm like, oh, there's that. And then I'm just like, <laughs> you know, if it's yeah. like 30%, and then then obviously the absolute count's going to be really high, and I'm right. going to be... Has absolutely nothing to do with their diarrhea there, Matt. <laughs> So um, actually, um, an absolute eosinophil count of over 1,500 gets our attention. Less than that, you know, maybe it's an allergic reaction, maybe it's medications or something like that. Yeah. And as an internist, I think for me, the favorite thing to do with lab abnormalities is just keep repeating them until they go away. Um, I'm wondering, <laughs> in this true. particular patient, is that, is that a reasonable approach? Is there anything that sort of warrants immediate referral just based on what you know, or would it be reasonable just to say, huh, that's weird, and just recheck it first? I would repeat it first. I think that's generally a good rule of thumb. Um, but if you repeat it and find the same thing, probably the next thing I would do is ask him to stop smoking and then repeat it. That's a hard thing to do. Did you guys ever want me to advance the slides? I mean, we do have some like tables and stuff. Uh, that's okay. Okay, I, cool. Yeah, you can you can advance the slides. That's uh, advance, <laughs> I'll let you have fun uh, with that. <laughs> Mine's not working anymore. Still, again and again. Perfect. And this is the part of the show where Stuart brings us back to the technical difficulties we've been having. <laughs> For five sweet minutes, it looked like a professional operation, and then okay. it just went off the rails. Mary, we talked about this a little bit before we before we started recording. The peripheral smear, when we order that, what exactly happens, and like who's looking at that, and how how confident are you when you send one? Like, do you always look at it yourself? You're probably qualified to. I don't think I am anymore, or nor, nor was I ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a peripheral smear is te- typically um, uh, created and read by the hematology tech at the bench. If they see any abnormalities, they'll typically ask a pathologist to take a look at it before they certify the thing. And so sometimes it'll read uncertified until it is certified. Um, Here, uh, what we would typically do is ask them to make a peripheral smear and then look at it ourselves. Um, And if there's something that looks a little bit funny, um, we have very willing hematopathologists who would look through it with us. And so um, we're fortunate in that way. Okay. Yeah. It just, for, for all these cases, uh, it just kept, you know, coming up. Peripheral smear. Yeah. And then when I get them in my hospital, I'm like, you know, who's, who's looking at this? How much do I need it. to, yeah. you know, I cash back. We have a lot of <laughs> sketchy personnel. So it's just like, <laughs> I'm never sure what's quite going on. Um, all right. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, like, just in general, the leukemoid reaction that people mention all the time. Yeah. Um, is there a certain cutoff for that? Or how do you, is that ever worrisome? Yeah, so generally a leukemoid reaction means that you have a high neutrophil count without a malignant etiology. So a benign etiology for a high neutrophil count. I can't say that I've used that word since medical school. Okay. <laughs> and so... Um, I yeah the, the, yeah, the reason it's come up like a couple times recently is just someone has like a really high count and we're just like, all right, it's... Well, it's, we, we, we do this thing called a pro-cal now. A pro-cal? Uh, I, right? I don't know, Stuart. T- t- teach me something. <laughs> you don't know what a procalstonin is? No, I do. I do, but I, I mean, I that wasn't on my like right. pathway so, for. So it, I mean, it, the, the way that I would approach it in this case is that if they're if they have, if they have a, 
elevated neutrophil count, I'm going to check a pro-cal because that's going to determine to me, do I treat this as an infection? Do I look for something else that's going on that I'm missing potentially? Or do I consider sending this to my hematopathologist in order to do a potentially a bone marrow biopsy and, and look at, a, look at a, a plate, a smear, whatever? Is this expert opinion or guideline derived? <laughs> this is steward-driven opinion. And do you mind me asking, in, in this particular patient, just because I, I do like the physical examination, are there certain areas other than, I'm not sure I've ever actually felt a spleen tip, if I'm being completely honest, but are there certain, uh, what, what sort of physical examination features are specifically important uh, for leukocytosis or this type of patient? Right, so um, a spleen exam is really important, and then also a lymph node exam. Um, and then if they have any other signs of infection, you know, you want to be looking for that, Right. So when do we get to the big test that I don't know how to interpret? The uh, bone marrow biopsy and the flow cytometry, is that at all part of this pathway for someone with uh, leukocytosis? So uh, yes and no. So I think that in someone that comes in with a neutrophilia, um, probably not our first go-to test. But if someone has the elevated lymphocytosis, so absolute lymphocyte count over 5,000, or sometimes even if it's less than that, um, or if they have lymphadenopathy or anything else that makes you concerned for a lymphoproliferative disorder, this is where flow cytometry can be really, really helpful. So flow cytometry, um, can I talk about it for a second? Please do. Oh, okay. So what it is, is um, you take uh, someone's, you know, blood, and then it's tagged with all these different markers and then run through a machine. Like millions of cells are read individually at a time, and then they're put out on a scatter plot. And essentially what, you know, what the pathologist will identify is normal populations of cells. And then what they're really looking for is an abnormal population of cells. So these might help us identify, uh, like a, maybe a clonal disorder, a clonal, typically B cell process or T cell process, but you can also pick up blasts this way, myeloid or lymphoid blasts as well. I, so when, I usually involve a hematologist before I order that. Is that good practice, <laughs> or should I just be like, do you want me to do that before I send this person to you with their with their lymphos, absolute lymphocyte count that's elevated? If they have an absolute elevated lymphocyte count, I actually think it would be okay um, right. to send it. And if they had like smudge cells on a peripheral blood smear or something yeah. like that. I like to impress my consultants. I, I think, Paul, Stuart, you guys probably feel the same way, right? Like, Sure. I have not done it yet, but it was, that's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, how does this case end, Paul? I'm curious to know. I, I, I think we follow my approach. We repeat the labs until he's better. Okay. Yeah. So we got better. Yeah. It came down. Paul, why don't we go to the next case? Certainly happy to, Matt, as always. Um, another unfortunately named, unfortunately named patient. This is uh, Louis K. Opinia. Again, I'm not proud, guys. Um, <laughs> it's a 34-year-old male. He's presenting just for a work physical. Minimal history other than he had maybe a sinusitis a couple weeks ago. He was treated in urgent care with a medication that maybe started with the letter A. Um, takes occasional ibuprofen for joint pain in his hands. Mom had arthritis from a young age. Um, father's history is not entirely known. Denies any drug, alcohol, or tobacco use. Uh, he's sexually active with three female partners and usually uses barrier protection. And so you decide to fire your intern because you do a screening CBC. Um, and it comes back with 20, 28% PMNNs, ANC of 1,100. The remainder of his counts are normal. The remainder of his labs are stone cold normal. And now, again, you're stuck with this healthy patient without really any kind of complaints who's now here with this sort of wonky uh, white blood cell count and an ANC that's low. So now what? Yeah, this is uh, commonly seen as well, actually. So um, I'd want to know historically if you had access to his previous CBCs, what his white count was before. Um. 
can we go through both scenarios? So let's sure. say this is we're meeting him for the very first time and we got nothing. So then, then how would you approach it? So we don't know if this is new or if it's old. And so, and also in the setting of a recent infection where he might have gotten some sort of medication, that would be my first thought. Could it be a medication effect or some somehow related to whatever his infection was? Maybe it was bacterial, but maybe it was viral, right? We don't know. Um, so then the first step would actually be to repeat the CBC. I love it. <laughs> You're speaking Paul's language. Are you are you a hematologist? Are you trained? <laughs> <laughs> I do flow cytometry on him. I'll see what happens. Um, but say, um, you know, you had access to his labs before and um oh I'm sorry, staying on this on this case. So say it was a it was not associated with a one-time infection. Maybe he's had chronic sinusitis, and maybe this is uh, something that is now a problem for him. He's symptomatic, right? Um, then we want to find out, like, what's going on, right? So um, I would repeat it. If it's still low, then, you know, look for other causes. Um, if he doesn't get better, then you want to know, you know, what else could be driving this. And so this is where you look at the rest of the CBC. You know, you don't want to miss any blasts on the peripheral smear. You don't want to miss any other cytopenias that might be think, uh, directing you more toward a bone marrow problem. And if the, if you went back and, and you managed to get old records miraculously, I'm not sure how, how well you guys do, but I feel like I'd never get them. But he actually turns out his counts have been consistently like this for, say, the past three years. How does that sort of yeah, change? Yeah, so approach? we actually have an amazing EMR. And so... Um, that's, 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 that's very nice. <laughs> Congratulations all of you. <laughs> and so... Um, so we ha- we could potentially get some historical data. If it looks like that he's had um, neutropenia for a long time, right, but asymptomatic, meaning no problems with recurrent infections, um, then I would be thinking, could this be what we call benign ethnic neutropenia? And so I'd be interested to know, first of all, what's his ethnicity? Um, and then there's actually a lab test that we could obtain to confirm benign ethnic neutropenia. And so um, one way that we could do this is by obtaining a phenotype of the RBC to see if there's the presence or absence of Duffy antigen. And if someone is Duffy null, meaning they're um, negative for the Duffy A and Duffy B, then that would be Duffy null and consistent with benign ethnic neutropenia. Once you confirm that and they're asymptomatic, send them back to their PCM and they don't have to follow up with you. (laughs) You look so happy right now. Part of this case was, as just doing a little bit of pre-reading, which very occasionally I do, I tried to give this case kind of a flavor of some, maybe an underlying rheumatologic issue of some kind. How often is sort of a a neutropenia sort of a harbinger of uh, an occult or maybe not so occult, uh, rheumatologic process? I actually don't know if it's like a harbinger. Usually it's seen concomitantly, right? So um, if someone has, you know, symptoms of, say, a rheumatologic process or their ferritin sky high, then certainly that can be associated, say, like in Feltes syndrome or something like that. Mm -hmm. To recap, it basically sounds like you look for drugs that might have caused it, look for some infections. If they have an obvious, like, autoimmune process of some sort, that might explain it. Otherwise, we might check a Duffy, Duffy, see if they're Duffy null. Am I using the lingo right? That's I want to sound cool. Yeah. Okay. Is, it, yeah. is that one word or two? It's Duffy uh-huh. antigen. Yeah. Uh, two words. Got it. Yeah. Are we back to the technical difficulty show, Stuart? <laughs> uh, why don't we go on to, are we done with this case, Paul? Or do you wanna, so. Why don't we move on to Coach Tony? All right. So we've got uh, Coach Tony here. Uh, go ahead and advance it one more slide there. So just like our prior gentleman, this is a 55-year-old gentleman who's coming in. He's uh, requesting, actually, that we start testosterone replacement on him. This is not infrequent in some of the uh, clinics that I work in. 
unfortunately. So a quick peek, however, his last CBC and prior CBC suggests that his hemoglobin has really been 16 to 18 range, give or take, for at least the past few years. He denies a history of chest pain, of any uh, DVT-PE, or unexplained weight loss. Past medical history is significant for obstructive sleep apnea. Not surprising, considering where I typically practice medicine. Um, medications include chlorthalidone and past surgical history. He is a non-smoker, and he drinks about one to two alcoholic beverages per week. Go ahead and advance it one more there. But unfortunately, he says he's half the man he used to be. He really wants that test- testosterone replacement. Um, so first off, before we go to the physical examination, what are some things that you're thinking about right now? Just- Aside from the picture up there. Don't look at that. <laughs> So that's a pretty high hemoglobin, right? Mm-hmm. So for a man, if the hemoglobin's over 16.5, that certainly gets their attention. Right. Um, one, we want to know, again, is this new or is it something that he's had lifelong? Oh, this is definitely not new. No, no, no. So he's had it for a while. He has. And, um, you know, is he symptomatic? Has he had any complications related to this? No. He pretty much denies everything because he really wants a testosterone. Right. Okay. So then, um, so then the next question becomes, um, you know, what's driving this? Right. Right. So he has some personal risk factors, but then it's possible that this could be a bone marrow process, another myeloproliferative neoplasm. So what are some things that we should be looking for on examination before we even start to take a look at them? Right. So the MPN or the myeloproliferative neoplasm that I'm thinking of is polycythemia vera. Mm-hmm. And so generally for P. vera, what you want to see is do they have an enlarged spleen? Um, so on physical exam, I'd specifically look for that. And then you'd want to see if they have any symptoms related or physical exam findings related to the erythrocytosis. Right. Go ahead and advance it one more there. So you've got the gist of his exam, which is probably about as good as I'll get it when it, they consult me for who knows what. Um, so his uh, pulse ox is a, a little bit low, but it's not really significantly low. He has a ruddy appearance to his face. He's a little bit red when he comes and sees you, but he says he just rushed in from outside and it's about 105 degrees outside, not here, but uh, where I typically practice medicine. His labs are, as you see up there, oh my gosh, it just completely changed on me. <laughs> um, with his uh, MCV uh, being normal, and RDW is not elevated. So what else would you want to know at this point? So um, I think the first step for this would be to check an EPO level. Okay. Um, I would want to know, is his erythropoietin level elevated or is it low, right? So it's like a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was low, um, that would mean that the, these RBCs are being produced without any stimulation. Um, and that would make me think more of a pri- primary, you know, erythrocytosis like polycythemia vera. But if his erythrocytosis... If his EPO level is like normal, inappropriately normal, or even elevated, then it would make me think there's something else driving this. Um, for instance, like hypoxia, right. maybe related to his OSA, or, you know, maybe uh, he has some underlying lung disease. Um, I, you know, possibly also something stimulating the kidneys. So, um, uh, renal cell carcinoma, certainly, but um, also renal cysts, renal artery stenosis, things like this can also stimulate EPO production. And then lastly, there's some tumors that could do this too. Okay. So even before that, is this a patient that you would want me to send to you, or you think that I should be working this patient up before I send them to you? So if you could check an EPO level on your way <laughs> with your referral, I think that would be probably the most helpful because that impacts our immediate decision making when we first see them in our Should I just immediately order a JAK2 mutation? Okay, so <laughs> it might not be unreasonable, um, but it might be a better use of resources. Maybe if you started with an EPO level and then okay. did the Jack 2 later. Excellent. I will not wear the Jack 2 next time. All right. 
I don't know if we can advance. We'll try again. Oh my gosh, it's working for one slide. Okay, just, great. Can I we think we have again? it on record, Stuart, that you're that Mary told you not to order a Jack Two. So. I, I I did on this patient already. So unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, let's see, we already talked about that one. This is amazing. All right. Well, so other things about him. So, uh, so his EPO was elevated. Jack two was negative. All right, guys, it was negative. So we don't have to worry about that. So, so to speak. Um, but uh, there's some concerning findings on him. So he does not like his APAP. How often does sleep apnea actually cause a secondary polycythemia? Is that a common thing? Is that uncommon? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I. We, we certainly have it on our differential. It's very prevalent. Um, but I'll tell you that sometimes we've sent people for um, polysomnography and mm-hmm. have, you know, put them on CPAP without much improvement of their um, erythrocytosis. So I, I think probably it helps, but I don't know that. Yeah. I, don't know. I think it's a hard thing because then you're hoping the patient's actually going to be compliant. And, and they're not. Just yeah. start, I'll start off with that. Yeah. Not, I, I don't want to sound like I'm just saying they won't ever be compliant, but uh, anecdotally, it's it's southward of 50%. I, I would say uh, most of the patients that I've seen with this sort of thing, they're smoking and they probably have sleep apnea and it, it's, it seems like it's a multiple hit situation. But if you tell them that if they're compliant with their CPAP and they're not having uh, any significant blood dyscrasias that you're going to give them testosterone... Uh, I kid you not, their compliance report is almost 100% all the time. (laughs) But that's only for 30 days. We did want to ask you with this case about some of the fancy terms, aquagenic puritis and erythromyalgia. Can you talk, tell us about those a little bit? Yeah, sure. So aquagenic puritis is kind of just what it sounds like, right? So that's like itching or maybe like burning or stinging that's triggered by exposure to water. Right. So that's weird. <laughs> sometimes patients will describe like, um, you know, with a bath or shower that they get itching. And so um, why it happens, I don't really know. Maybe some sort of histamine release, but um, uh, it's a real thing. And then the erythromyalgia is actually really interesting. It's uh, erith- erythema. Um, there's a great picture here um, that seems to happen in the hands and feet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that seems to be associated with polycythemia vera specifically. So this, Stuart, your patient, his quest was to get you to prescribe testosterone. Yeah. So how did you how did you hack this situation? Uh not 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 very well, as you already know, right? <laughs> so um so this specific patient, his hemoglobin was actually not that high initially. So we're talking years ago. I've had the same patient for a very, very long time. So anywhere from like fourteen to fifteen. Um his testosterone level was was less than sixty-five. It was mm. very, very low. Had a history of uh anabolic steroid usage, so had secondary hypogonadism with other things going on at that point. Not compliant initially on, on a CPAP. Uh came back with a compliance report that was thirty days, looked great. Ended up putting him on testosterone um, after being fairly convinced that we'll be we'd be okay. But then after being on testosterone for a period of time, his uh, blood counts shot back up. So uh, not shot back up, but started to shoot up. Um, so uh, in, initially, he, the hematocrit was less than fifty percent, but came back um, within a period of a couple of years. Uh, and uh, yeah, his hemoglobin was nineteen point two. So the next question they gave me. And one that I don't even know how to approach is like, look, guy, I'm not going to give you your testosterone at this point. It's like, well, can I just go donate blood? I, I don't know. What do you think? 
Yeah, I don't know either, but I don't think that would probably hurt him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that that's a great long-term solution either. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell him to put some leeches on his fingers and uh, walk Right, around. yeah. Um, I think it's a reasonable option. The leeches? Yeah. Uh, the phlebotomy. <laughs> In a similar patient at Cashlack, I did convince a hematologist to, because the patient had such great responses to prior testosterone and was so insistent about it and compliant in every other way. We did him a solid and we would do therapeutic phlebotomy and he was put back on testosterone once the level had dropped down. Uh, Do not try this at home without the (laughs) approval of your local hematologist. (laughs) Right. So the concern is that if someone has a really high erythrocyte count, that they would be at risk for thrombosis, right? So that's like the big thing to look out for. Mm. Um, It's, I think, way better understood in the setting of a myeloproliferative neoplasm like P. vera. Um, in other settings that are secondary, you know, is it a strong, not so sure, but probably it's a good idea to bring the numbers down a little bit mm-hmm. if you can. Okay. So we, I think we're doing okay on time. We're actually. doing great. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Right for next case. We are not known for our time no. management. So you guys <laughs> witnessing a first here. Uh, Even I with the technical to... difficulties. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted Wait, to. Are we unplugged? We're unplugged. I I unplugged it because it wasn't working, so it it was going to be a distraction. I knew it. Um, we so can I, I hope everyone in the back can hear uh, can hear us all okay still. Um, so our 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 final case is a case of Lola Platelets. She's a forty forty seven year old female. Uh, uh, you're right to groan. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> It's the little things in life. I mean, I know it bothers Paul so much that we just had to we had to go with this. This is the one uh, time I didn't go along with them, and I should have. Yeah. Hmm. So Lola Platelets is a 47-year-old female. Uh, she comes in as a new patient. She's complaining of fatigue. She's got a history of multiple sclerosis, some neuropathy. She used to smoke, doesn't smoke anymore. She's on some meds, duloxetine, pantoprazole, vitamin D, B12. Uh, pretty normal physical exam. On her lab, she has a hemoglobin of 11.2, platelets of 96,000, white blood cell count 9.5, the MCV is 90, the RDW is 15. So uh, with, with this patient, I mean, what jumps out at you about it and how, would, how might you approach this? So this is a patient that comes in with mild thrombocytopenia, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a normal platelet count being be- somewhere between 150 and 450, um, she's... In the 90s, right? Yeah, 96. Okay. And then um, otherwise, uh, she's having mild symptoms of fatigue. Um, so you wonder if that could be related or not either. Um, looking at the rest of the CBC, however, um, she doesn't really have a abnormal white count. Or, and I think her hemoglobin? Hemoglobin is 11.2. It's a, ah, sorry. It's a okay. Touch on the low side, I guess. Okay, a little bit low. So then the first thing is we want to know why is it low, mm-hmm. right? Because um, whenever we see someone with an abnormal platelet count, you want to know, is it an isolated thrombocytopenia or is it with something else? Mm-hmm. Um, and so so we let's say we work that up a little bit. Iron studies are normal. The retic count's a bit low, what you'd expect for a hemoglobin that's low, um, but nothing, nothing too crazy. And her multiple sclerosis has kind of been quiescent. Okay. Um, and her medications, have they changed recently? Not really, just what you see here. She's been on them kind of consistently. Okay. 
or maybe we take the hemoglobin out of it because uh, this, I, I think in real life, it's often like, you know, it, it's rare that they would just have the isolate, an isolated thrombocytopenia, but let's make this an isolated thrombo. Okay. Let's say we repeat it again. And she said she had had recently had her menses the first time you did it. Now we repeat it and it's two weeks later, it's 12.5. Okay, great. So we're dealing with a, a thrombo and the platelets on repeat are 90,000. Okay. So we have someone with isolated thrombocytopenia, right? So um, the question would be, you know, is it, a platelet production problem or is it a platelet destruction problem? And so that's like the first question that we're getting at. Um, when someone has an isolated low platelet count. Um, oh, before you, before you go on yeah. to that, should we do the Paul Williams method? And uh, well, we've repeated it, but do we, do we need to do the EDTA thing? Like the whole. What? That's the his method? No, no, no. Sorry. The, do we, do we have to always go down that to send like a, send a different different tube in order to make sure this is like real. So your question is, is this real or not? Yeah. Right. So yes. Right. But do you have to do that um, using a different tube? Not necessarily. Right. So normal CBCs run with an EDTA purple top tube. Mm -hmm. The problem is that sometimes the platelets can kind of like bunch together or cause what we call platelet clumping. Mm -hmm. um, you can detect this on a peripheral blood smear. Right. Okay. So when you're looking at the peripheral blood smear, the platelets should be kind of nice and spread out. But if all of a sudden you see like a bunch of platelets just like lumped all together, um, that would be what we call clumping. And that could give you a falsely low platelet count. Okay. And so uh, one way to get around that would be to run it through a blue top tube, right? Uh -huh. The same kind of tube that you would send coags, you know, and um, uh, that's a citrated tube and uh, gets rid of the clumping issue. And I'm sorry, I cut you off as you were going in. You were talking about the, the platelet destruction or the platelet production problem. So what's what's next in your algorithm there? So then I typically think of um, other things, right? So um, could this be ITP is kind of a... Dif uh, diagnosis of exclusion. Um, for ITP, there's really two things that you have to cross off the list, mm -hmm. HIV and hepatitis C. Okay. Okay. But then there are other things that could cause thrombocytopenia as well, right? So B12 and folate deficiencies, th uh, thyroid disorders, liver dysfunction, uh, particularly if they might have cirrhosis. My husband's a hepatologist and he says that's very frequently someone's primary presentation of cirrhosis um, uh, with, you know, portal... Um, portal hypertension and splenomegaly. Um, sometimes uh, H. pylori infection has been associated with thrombocytopenia, um, although I've treated plenty of H. pylori and haven't seen the platelets come up, right. interestingly enough. Um, and then um, you want to you know, see if there's other things going on, other rheumatologic disorders. This patient has MS, which, you know, might be an autoimmune condition, which might make you think of other autoimmune conditions. And so um, those are the things that I'm thinking about in the back of my head. So the hypersplenism, you were talking about with cirrhosis, there's, there's hypersplenism where portal hypertension is just sort of causing blood to kind of pool in the spleen and the platelets are being just stored in there. Is that the uh, idea? So I think they're more being like uh, captured maybe captured. by the spleen, mm -hmm. right? Um, as the spleen is becoming enlarged. Yeah. Are there um, any medications that raise your eyebrows or particular culprit meds that you worry about when you see a platelet count like this? Yeah. So um, like the big scary ones are heparin, uh -huh. <laughs> right? Because HIT um, and thrombocytopenia, no matter what the actual platelet count is, if it's, you know, falls a certain percentage from their baseline and the timeline is right, that's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. So certainly um, heparin products, chemotherapy in my world. Um, but also, you know, even things like maybe, you know, Zantac or possibly, you know, um, antidepressants, antibiotics, um, many, many, many medicines are associated with thrombocytopenia. And so we look for those culprit medicines as well. So before, let's say we checked HIV, it's negative. We checked 
uh, hep C, it's negative. Um, I, it, when I was looking this up, it said if the patient has dyspepsia, they would send the H. pylori study. But I, I, I like your point that you haven't really seen it make much difference in the platelet count I anyway. I've diagnosed a lot of H. pylori this You lady. have done? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, anything, and we did our peripheral smear to kind of look at the platelets. Is there anything else? Like what about if they don't have any features of like a connective tissue disease, do you, do you bother sending A and A and those type of labs or the, the SPEP? Can, can you comment yeah, on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned earlier on that, um, I did a, you know, some research in multiple myeloma. Yeah. And so a lot of my patients get SPEP. Yeah. <laughs> my threshold you know is quite low. <laughs> we might have to have you back for talking about multiple myeloma. No joke. Um, but, uh, um, I think those are very reasonable. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I would necessarily send an ANA if they didn't have symptoms of a connective tissue disorder because I don't think you can make a diagnosis um, without symptoms, right, of lupus or other connective tissue disorders. I, I, I have kind of a question as an aside. Um, so we do serotonin release assays for platelet function. The medications that you had mentioned that cause thrombocytopenia typically either block or uh, increase the in, the endogenous levels of serotonin. Is it the actual? Is it are, are these specific serotoninergic medications themselves that are associated with thrombocytopenia, or is it just a correlation or association that's been found? Is there something with the serotonin that's affecting platelet function that then is causing destruction? That's a great question, and I don't know the answer. I know that these medicines are on a list right. that cause thrombocytopenia. The list is long, though. Yeah. I'm not sure about the mechanism exactly. That is such a classic Stuart question. <laughs> <laughs> it just harkens back to some of the research that, that I'm participating in that it's, okay. It, All right. I'm going to look at the database again. Well, I think we need to at least think about wrapping up. And, oh, actually, I promised I would ask you this question, and you then you can go into your take-home points. What is, like, the most annoying thing that general internists send to you? Like, what can we do better? Give us some feedback. Constructive, please. Of Be course, Yeah. I have one. One pet peeve. All right. Please repeat a CBC <laughs> if it's abnormal. Such good advice. This um, is like Paul's best. <laughs> it's like the best day of Paul's life. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we'll get referrals for, you know, abnormal counts, low or high, whatever. Um, but when they show up in our office, it's completely back to normal again. And it's like pleasant. They think we've done a great job. But, um, you know, uh, maybe an unnecessary. Yeah. Their primary care is probably like, I'm going to send you to Mary. She's going to do a bone marrow biopsy. <laughs> and then they get there. You repeat the CBC. You're like, you don't need to do anything. And then they give you a big hug and that's, you seem that's you're, usually you're the happens. hero. Yeah. So well, wait, well, so what are you complaining about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Joe's scores are so great now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why don't you give us your take-home points? So the take-home points, we talked about a lot of different things. Um, high white count, high... Uh, hemoglobin, low platelets, low white count. I would say the take-home point is this, is um, do a really good history and physical exam because I think most of what you, uh, you could narrow down your differential so much just by that history and physical. Even if you can't feel the spleen tip like Paul? Even if you can't Mm. feel the spleen tip, but you have to try to feel the spleen tip a lot of times and then eventually you will feel it. Did you hear that, Paul? Paul's also working on his POCUS skills, so I think it's going to be fine. <laughs> He's got a pocket ultrasound now. He'll be good. Yeah. And then um, also think about like if it's like one cell line that's elevated or multiple cell lines that's elevated, right? If it's like, or, or low, because um, if it's like just isolated, you know, neutropenia or just isolated thrombocytopenia, that totally changes your differential from uh, if it would be like two cell lines down or three cell lines down, because that makes you more think about a bone marrow problem. Um and then, um, 
Let me think. For erythrocytosis, please check an EPO level first. I think that takes you down two very different pathways. Um, and then I actually think those are my big take-home points. All right. Yeah. Thank Perfect. you so much. I don't think anyone's ever complained about a conference ending. No, I don't think time. so. So no, actually, before we get rolling, I, I did want to ask um, Dr. Kwok if you had any any disclosures that you would like. Yes, to I have a disclosure. <laughs> um, I should a, disclose the that these are my personal views and do not represent those of the Army or the Department of Defense. <laughs> should we record an outro? Yeah, I think we can. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, that feels like a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing away a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Thank you, team. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode. Any producers who help the show notes and figures for this we don't. I don't know who's going to help with this one. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garb Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Jew on Facebook. And until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Mary Kwok. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thanks. Goodbye. All right. What are you? What? I don't know. This thing's not working at all. Well, you don't have to make deep eye contact with me when you're first. Like that's not necessary. <laughs> this right. is uh, this is pretty much how most recordings go. A little bit of little bit of infighting that I cut out before I send it out to iTunes. <laughs> how does this not work? Do do other presenters have the same issue with this thing? Did I not predict that this would be a sideshow with him and the thing?